Hey everyone, welcome to today's show. So today we're gonna go back deep into the world of private equity. And I do this a lot on the show because I think there are practices, disciplines that can be applied from private equity into private business. And as many of you know, I spent most of my career or a large part of my career in private equity, not as the firm partner as such, but as the operator, as the CEO, as the person who was getting the stuff done in the businesses, in the portfolio companies. And from that experience, I learned a lot. And I think those different practices can be applied to where you are in your journey. So today with me on the show to go backwards and forwards on this world of private equity is Rob Huxtable. Now, Rob Huxtable is a person who puts the best talent, finds and hires the best talent for private equity portfolio companies. He has spent his career going out there and working in the world of private equity on CEO searches, CFO assignments, as well as finding fund level operating partners, which I used to be, into these private equity firms and the various companies that they invest in. In fact, he has spent 15 years doing retained search activity for the private equity firms and has done more than 250 assignments across North America in all sorts of diverse industries such as software, tech services, healthcare, consumer, business services, you name it. The first one are those that sell to private equity and sort of come to terms with the fact that what got me here won't get us there. And so I'm going to opt into the board of directors and I'm gonna help them run a succession plan to replace me as CEO and, and I'll be an invested, engaged board member. So what we're gonna get into today is what does that look like? Now, it could be that you are thinking about selling your company to private equity and you wanna build out your leadership team before you do that. It could be that you want to become an operating partner or someone as a leader who can go into a private equity backed company. It could simply be that you just wanna know how private equity thinks about talent, how private equity hires talent, and as I said, how they manage talent to get the, the successful outcome into their investments. So Rob is a world leader on this topic and we are gonna go backwards and forwards on this both in terms of what this world looks like, but more importantly, the things that you can take away and you can apply in your business as you are starting to build out your leadership team, build out your business, and try and create a high value company. Pick the fund you want to work with because you think they'll be good partners, even if that bid price is number two, because you're gonna make more money on that second bite of the apple anyway, if it goes well. So have the restraint to pick who you wanna do business with. So get your pen and paper or your iPad or whatever out, get ready to take some notes. This is a masterclass in private equity recruitment. So welcome to the show. Rob Huxtable. Hey, everybody. It is Nick Bradley here. Welcome to this week's episode of Scale Up. And boy, do we have a fun one today. I have got a gentleman on the show today who I haven't brought on this type of expertise before, even though in my consultancy and my one-to-one -one advisory, what we're going to get into today comes up all the time. And what we're going to touch on and go deep in today is what it takes to survive, to thrive as a C-suite leader in private equity, a private equity-backed portfolio company. And joining me to talk about that today is Rob Huxtable. He is a partner of a executive search firm called Falcon and a world expert on this stuff. So Rob, welcome to the show. 
Nick, great to be here. Excited to unpack a really interesting topic. Let's go. It really is. And you know what? It's like everything. We, we just spoke for 10 minutes before pressing record on heaps of really fun stuff. <laughs> so that, that's always a good. Let's, let's get into your background first before we kind of get into um, this, this world of private equity. Firstly, how did you how did you get into recruitment and and, and high level kind of headhunting, executive search, and then why private equity? Yeah, so I've been in recruitment for twenty years. Uh, the first effort was a complete face plant fail because we had built ourselves a uh, consultancy that focused on mortgage finance executives, uh, leading right into the uh, housing recession. And so no one was hiring anyone, let alone paying a fee to do so. So that business was shuttered. Um, and during my transition period, I met a, a mentor uh, who did a lot of search work for private equity. And it just opened my eyes that instead of working for these large corporations and, and your customers being sort of business unit leaders or corporate human resources, think about going smaller, work with these businesses where you can leave a meaningful impact by recruiting a, a CEO or other C-level role. The stakes are high. Uh, the pressure is extreme. The drama is intense. Um, but the outcomes are incredible. But maybe more importantly for me, um, the personal and professional growth you get to experience by exposing yourself to some of the most world-class business minds uh, on earth um, has been worth the, the, the freight for sure. So um, I've been running Falcon for 11 years and we are a um, boutique consultancy that works exclusively for private equity-owned mid-market companies. We do CEO, CFO, and head of commercial searches along with a few operating partner assignments. And I would say that um, everything about what we do is looking for somebody with a, a white collar brain who can keep up and stay in pace with this board, but has a blue collar ability to roll up those sleeves and absolutely execute on a world-class level. I like that. You know, it's funny. I, I frame that in a similar way, but um, not as eloquently <laughs> as well, you. So what, what, it's funny. I'll, I'll share this um, with you and, and the listeners. When I, when I worked at a company called Getty Images, and Getty back in the day was um, certainly one of the heroes of private equity, you know, scale up and exits. I think the business, the business when I was there was worth about $2 billion, but it, it's recently been valued at $5 billion, And it's been bought and sold in multiple different ways. But what was fascinating about the environment is that you had a lot of strategies sitting at the board level where, where the private equity guys were and the C-suites of Getty and, and the founders were still around. But everyone that was hired sort of underneath that. So the SVPs, the VPs, directors, all that were just operationally solid, like could get stuff done like you've never seen, right? So, you know, your point around blue collar, they were smart individuals, but it wasn't about how clever they were in their thinking. It was how well they could execute. And what I've found to be true in my experience of private equity is that that tends to be a theme, right? Have you found that to be true as well in, in, you know, in your transition into the private equity world? Yeah, absolutely. And it's what's most important to private equity. Can you execute on their investment thesis, which sounds like a fancy term, but it's usually a pretty straightforward strategy. You know, we're going to strengthen management. We're going to expand the TAM. We're going to accelerate top line. We're going to professionalize. We're going to do some acquisitions. So we don't want to overthink being super creative. We want to solidify a pretty straightforward plan and execute at a world-class level. And I think the issue among many is that if you talk to most CEOs and C-suite leaders, they're, they're under the misperception that strategy is more important than execution. Mm, when yeah. Actually, the reverse is true. 
yeah, you get paid for what you get done, right? <laughs> you know, in that respect. And I, and it's funny actually, because um, your point there also about the simplicity of the strategy. I think sometimes people think the world of private equity is complex. I think there are a lot of different levers that private equity firms utilize more so than many entrepreneurs do. And we can get into that. But what I found also is they love a simple strategy. A simple strategy well executed drives value quicker than, you know, trying to create something that's complex or hasn't been done before and you have to kind of trailblaze. So the lesson here to anyone listening to this founders wise is, you know, if you want to sell your company to private equity one day, and we're going to get into that environment in more detail in a second, you don't have to reinvent something to be totally clever. Clever is not necessarily the thing that's valued the most. That's right, because you know, on one hand, private equity investors are some of the the brightest and most ambitious and, and boldest business minds out there. But they're also uh, risk averse, uh, thoughtful, you know, hedgers of bets, and they would much rather have something with certainty tied to it, with a, a solid outcome, than a uh, a bit of a swing on a venture style for a potential yeah. home run. <clears throat> Precisely. Well, let's talk about. Um, what it takes to survive and thrive to my point before in that environment. And let's talk about it from the context that you've had to do that, right? So I know that it, it can be seen a bit of a, a closed secret handshake type of society. <laughs> I certainly had that. And to break into it can be difficult, but to break into it and then survive in there for 11 odd years is also impressive. So t take us through that. Take us through what it was like when you first got into it, like how you got into it and why or how you've managed to sustain yourself in that environment for over a decade. Yeah, it sounds good. So I want to give a shout out to my dearly departed mentor, um, Stu Schreiber, who, who helped bring me into private equity. And we lost him to pancreatic cancer 12 oh. years ago. And, you know, as he was going through treatment on the back of a napkin, we made a deal that, you know, I would help run his firm for him while he was trying to recover. And, Presuming he would win, we would lead the firm together and it would be great. And I bought into that, even though logic said not to. I thought, hey, if I can help someone beat cancer, the, the karmic universe will catch me if I fall. Um, so he was given a two-month prognosis, made it 11 months. Um, and when he finally passed, we formalized the, the back of the napkin agreement with his estate. And I remember thinking, okay, I can do this. And then absolutely being overwhelmed by the intensity, um, the demands, the rigor, and the expectation that you're going to be able to be a catalyst versus be along for the ride. Um, so those first three years were about reinvention and, and sort of paying close attention to what they were really trying to accomplish above and beyond making a hire, investing heavily in myself, both psychologically and, and professionally. And then finally kind of got my footing about four years in and uh, you know, we, we built a nice firm along the way, but I think, if your question is, what are the lessons on how to keep a ringside seat to private equity? Um, there are a bunch of them, but one that's very salient and also two executives is we don't really care what you've done this year, last year, because the next challenge is the most important one. It's the one right in front of you. And so you better be reinventing yourself and improving on a constant basis. And people talk about adaptability. I like to take it one step for, for, further and call it you know, an evolutionary intentionality. So you get into this new deal, you can't just wait to adapt. That sounds reactive to me. You have to proactively seek out all the tea leaves and all the nuanced aspects of that environment and reinvent yourself while on one hand, staying true to who you are, but on the other hand, bringing that uh, skill set to bear in a way that works in that environment. 
And too many executives and founders that I you know deal with are a little bit like, yeah, I got this. Leave me alone. I know what I'm doing. They lack the vulnerability to look in the mirror and accept that, hey, I'm, I'm in early innings of a long game here. I've got a long way to grow and get better. And when you can do that and deliver on that, I think private equity gets excited. So what's what's fascinating about that point there, I think, is it comes back to confidence, right? And, and you know, self-belief maybe. Because the people I've found that tend to uh, operate with more ego, you know, look at this thing I've created, et cetera, et cetera. Quite often it's, you know, when they overemphasize that, it's usually because there's an uncertainty within what they're doing. So I found one of the, the skills I had to learn to be one of these guys, right? To go and operate, you know, companies for private equity firms is I had to, I had to have a certain level of detachment, right? You know, almost like a clinical precision, Rob. It doesn't mean I didn't care. Right. It doesn't mean that I didn't, you know, build teams and cultures and, and all that sort of stuff. But there was a certain level of focus that was required that meant that I had to have agility to your point or adaptability around how I operated. Because, you know, the the playing field is bigger, meaning, you know, it's it's high level stakes. Uh, there's a lot of twists and turns and influence that can happen within that as well. And I think if you, if you don't understand that, you can walk into an environment that you might have been great at running your business, great at growing the thing that you started. But when you get into this environment, that approach that got you to where you got to, to get to the point of value is very different once you transition. No question. And because of that, there's no shortage of dysfunctional relationships that exist between uh, private equity boards and, and their CEOs. Um, there's mistrust, there's doubt, there's opacity. And even some of those folks still thrive and do well, but they're doing less well than they otherwise could. So it, it's a murky um, situation that presents a lot of opportunity for elite executives mm -hmm. to really seek out and get into true alignment. Alignment's a term that gets thrown around all the time by private equity, and, and most people limit its application to the incentives that are involved. But when you really dig into it, it it's an everyday thing around what are we doing next? Why are we doing it? And how it's, a, it's a culture in, in some respects. I mean... There's a certain, I've worked for a number of PE firms and there's a thread that runs through all of them. Some of them, you know, there's, there's massive differences too. They're not all the same, but um, that point of alignment really resonates with me because there's a certain expectation of performance and there's also a certain, um, how do I put this? It's not really harshness. There's a lack of tolerability maybe in terms of not performing. So that part of it's very clean, right? And, and that doesn't always mean the numbers, by the way, that also means the way you influence. But let me let me ask you this, right? As an expert of, you know, bringing people into these portfolio companies, what are the characteristics that you see are quite common in the people who really make it, you know, as a C-suite leader in, in a private equity backed um, company? Yeah, great. So let's talk about two buckets of traits. One are intangibles and the other are going to be sort of orientation on skills. So on the intangible front, I'll, I'll make this first part quick since we've touched on it already, but I would say the number one trait I look for is self-esteem, rock solid self-esteem, where you just believe in yourself. And, and, and because of that, you've got vulnerability to accept where you have gaps and you have a plan to mitigate and continuously improve with a passion and a joy for the pursuit of greatness, as opposed to trying to survive a difficult situation. Mm, okay. The next trait I would say, we've touched on already, execution, but I'll, I'll go a step further and say it's execution at velocity. So I think everybody that I talk to would describe themselves as hands-on and fast-paced with an extreme sense of urgency. 
Uh, and yet there's no way for 90% of people to be in the top 10%. And when you get into private equity, a lens is placed upon you that will reveal exactly your capacity for speed and volume of decision-making for your ability to be data-driven on one hand, but then quickly go from that analysis to execution, accepting the paradigm that we want to move fast and it's better to make somewhat frequent, modest mistakes, learn and advance as opposed to procrastination and postponement to try to get everything exactly right. Um, so I'll, I'll say that's the urgency trait. Yep. Next, talk about hands-on, you know, these are finite resourced environments. And so everybody is a player coach. Everyone has to have their sleeves rolled up. What does that mean? <clears throat> it means a CEO who's trying to solve a revenue problem is going to do ride-alongs with their sales reps to go on customer calls themselves. Someone who's having a supply chain issue is going to go visit that supplier and dig in. Yes, they have people on their teams doing these things, but the skip level all the way down to the front lines to understand what's happening so they can be a more informed individual uh, is essential. Um, and then I'll say communication is another big opportunity. So even in the realm of alignment, private equity has a couple ethos concepts. And one of them is good news fast, bad news faster. And when you deliver news, they don't really care what it is as long as it's clear, succinct, here's what happened, here's so what, and here's what we are going to do about it. And oh, by the way, do you have some opinions on what we're going to do about it so that we can get there better, faster, stronger? Um, when, when you don't occupy the leadership vacuum in a private equity-backed company, private equity will start to occupy it for you. So you need to build this professional moat around your C-suite castle that keeps them nearby and engaged and involved but the minute you let that moat run dry, they have no choice but to infiltrate and, and to start taking more control than you might like. So I would say that covers the intangible side. I'll, I'll pause there before we move to skill set. And yeah, I mean, and maybe this is a skill set, but I definitely think um, aligned to communication is persuasion and influence. Yes. You know, I found that part of it quite important. And, and I suppose being able to influence at multiple levels. You know, even even up to the institutional investors, you know, if I was presenting at an AGM, you know, I would have to, you know, influence at that level and also have to then influence, you know, some of the junior people in the firm, right, that sort of thing. So that was interesting. If you went in there with a one, one trick type of approach to everything, like, you know, bull in a china shop, um, that doesn't go down very well. You know, you get you get <laughs> you get sidelined pretty quickly on that. Couldn't agree more. And back to this alignment concept. Part of it is, is you aligning with the environment, but just as importantly is, is getting others to align with your vision and where you want to go. And so a, a trait that is exactly uh, in sync with what you're talking about that we think about all the time is influence without authority. How can you bring people along and get them to buy in and trust? And maybe that's the underlying mm -hmm. we're talking about here is breaking down these uh, suspicious barriers, the sort of... Um, skepticism and the doubt that surrounds a lot of viewpoints of boards toward management and, and bringing trust into the forefront. So they know exactly who and what and why you're doing what you're doing. Yeah. I think, you know, it comes back to your first point around self-esteem and self-belief, right? Cause there's a bit there where if you are, you know, congruent with who you are, what you can do and realistic about that, you tend to operate at a different level and that's where trust starts to come in. I found that the people that have, you know, I, I, as I said to you before we press record, I used to go and have to replace 
CEOs, and we'll get into kind of why that happens a little bit later, I'm sure. But um, more often than not, it wasn't because those CEOs didn't have the ability to execute, right? It was usually a personal issue, a mindset issue, or a uh, self-belief issue, a confidence play that, you know, in that environment, they were just not, they just couldn't get themselves to realize that identity shift. That's what I tended to find. There's one, there's, I agree with all that. And I'd add one more concept, which is misalignment with a particular fund's governance model. Mm, so if okay. you're a dog CEO, you better find a fund who is relatively hands-off and would like you to fully occupy the seat and bring them along for the ride. Uh, and you better avoid a highly prescriptive fund uh, who who wants you to be a gear in their machinery. And no matter how talented or alpha you might be, they're going to break you down uh, one way or the other. So we spend a lot of time thinking about, you know, talent in a vacuum, but then how is it going to perform in the specific governance ecosystem of a given private equity firm's orientation? Mm, I like that. I haven't considered it like that before, but you're right. It's, um, and there are, there are different ways. Uh, it comes back a little bit to the culture of the firm and, and what's, what's expected, you know, um, but I've definitely been in environments where, you know, I've had a chairman on my board who's wanted to be the CEO, <laughs> right? And that's interesting its own, right? Um, and then I've been in environments where you might just have, you know, the intern from, you know, the MBA program who's in his first year at the private equity firm kind of sitting on the board, right? You know, great at every business book you've ever possibly read, but has never stepped foot in a company, you know, and they're very different dynamics, both of those. That's right. And yet they're, they're a highly valued stakeholder and they may be 28 years old and an AVP, but they may be the day-to-day -day deal person. And by the way, they matter. And you've got to find a way to bring people together and belong. And so one of the comments I'm often making to executives who are entering private equity is, okay, if this is a, a sporting event that we're all familiar with, okay, it's a, it's a golf match you're about to play. Well, it's still golf, but these fairways are a lot narrower and the rough is four inches high and the greens uh, continuously modulate, you know, throughout the round. You can't complain about the nature of the game. You signed up for it. You wanted this. So instead of like indexing toward what you dislike about it, solve the riddle, play the game on their terms and win. Love it. Let's get into the second part. So we touched, um, you know, um, on kind of characteristics, but then we were going to kind of get into skills, the skills that someone has to have to be successful in this environment. Yep. So let me describe the classic recipe that we typically look for in, in executives. And then we'll talk about ways to mitigate, you know, and develop those skills if somebody doesn't have that particular profile. So what we tend to find clients like the most is an early career blue chip foundation. So a name brand company where someone would have spent X number of years uh, through successive promotions being trained and developed and, and cross-functionally exposed to different aspects of business. And if they're lucky enough, maybe an expat assignment or two where your cultural skills are really put to the test. And then we like that person to have already left the larger enterprise and sought out progressively more senior roles in progressively smaller businesses. So that even if they haven't made it all the way down to the mid-market, they've demonstrated the ability to be more and more hands-on and operate in a less bureaucratic environment with less corporate resources. So with that as the backdrop of the recipe, the reason that private equity likes that, in my opinion, is on one hand, they love systems, processes, tools, models. They don't want anybody coming in and leading their company on instinct or emotion alone. 
They want somebody who, if they're going to segment the market, has a playbook and a tool that they've used time again on how we're going to do this. If they're going to integrate an acquisition, they want an absolute prescriptive model that dictates how that's going to get done, including something as boring and unsexy as checklists to make sure that nothing gets missed. And we want to, when we're operating these companies, we want to make sure they are systematized and mechanized to scale without excessive dependency on people and more dependency on process. So people who are into engineering scalable operations is, is absolutely an essential trait. Um, and then I would say, you know, the ability from a skill set standpoint to understand where the investment thesis lies and index toward those activities and staying focused on them as opposed to doing what you might be interested in. Okay. Then <clears throat> that's, that's interesting on the basis of, um, as I, I said beforehand, I work with businesses who are preparing for an exit, usually to private equity. And we, we call what you just described their transfer value in my world, meaning that, you know, if you build a business that has, you know, it can run like a well-oiled machine, it has the right structure, systems, processes. Um, it means that there isn't any reliance on, you know, any key staff potentially leaving or, or not transitioning successfully. So there's higher value, higher multiple on that. doesn't mean that the founder and the C-suite don't transition. But when I was sitting on the other side of the table, the PE side, I would look at it from the lens. You know what? There's a, there's a pretty strong track record of people not making that leap, right? So if I'm going to spend a lot of money on this asset, I want to make sure that everything else is there, that if I need to put a new, you know, jockey on the horse, so to speak, the horse is not going to, you know, fall over and die within the first race. Is that something else that you you see as well in terms of in terms of that transition yeah so we're talking about founders who've sold to private equity and what's their life look like post deal as opposed to pre-deal yeah i want to get into that in more detail because i think there's a lot of people listening to this i can tell you right now who are wanting to sell their businesses possibly to private equity and what we've never covered here as i said you know from the outset is what does that feel like? What does it look like? And if I'm going to be successful, if I do want to stick around and sell my business twice and roll over some equity or be involved in it and out, if I want to be that successful, say, CEO, how do I do that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, great. So I'd say it starts with, I'll put founders into three general buckets. Um, the first one are those that sell to private equity and sort of come to terms with the fact that what got me here won't get us there. And so I'm going to opt into the board of directors and I'm going to help them run a succession plan to replace me as CEO and, and I'll be an invested, engaged board member. Um, then there is a, a, another bucket on the other end of the, the spectrum, which are folks who are uniquely suited to transitioning into and thriving in a private equity owned environment and leading the business all the way through to an exit. Um, and then there's the middle bucket, which is you know a little painful at times, which are folks who come in with the best of intentions, who uh, say things like, I'm going to be the best CEO private equity's ever seen, only to see things unwind in a host of ways that we can get into um, that, that are pretty painful and end up costing value for not just the private equity firm, but also the CEO. Because my, my message to these founders is, I know it's your emotional baby and, and you're excited about it but coming to terms with why you started it, what makes you most passionate about the day-to-day, -day, comparing that to your life post-transaction and understanding what do I need to do so that my rollover equity will actually be worth more 
than the initial payday I got when I sold the business, because that's the beauty of selling to private equity. When you make more on the second sale than you did on the first and your company's even larger and more impressive than- Well, that's one of the, that's just to draw a line under that. That's one of the key reasons to do it, right? In my opinion, like, you know, other than, um, you know, you may want to kind of work in private equity for a long period of time afterwards, you know, move around different boards and things like that. Um, the key reason is you have that opportunity, whereas you don't often have that opportunity at all if you sell to a strategic. You know, obviously there are different types of strategic strategic exits, but that's definitely one of the key things about private equity, which makes it a unique um, exit opportunity. Yeah, and just to put some simple math on it for folks, um, and I'm, I'm using very small numbers here for the sake of uh, simple math, but if, if you have a million dollars, of proceeds and you take out 700 and you roll 300 yep. private equity deal. You're part of does a five X MOIC. Well, now that 300 is turned into a million five. And so you've made more on that second sale than the first and it's all cap yep. gain. Beautiful you know, situation. Very much so. Okay. So let's keep going. I want to break the three areas down here. So we've said, you know, the first one's I think quite simplistic, right? Like, you know, I know that I've taken this business as far as I can take it. And what I often advise my clients is we're, we're going to actually get prepared for that conversation before we put the business on the market. So in, in many cases, I might even um, have the CEO become the chairman slash CEO, and we might have already hired a president or someone in who could potentially be the person who could take the business further forward, as opposed to the, the PE firm having to find someone off the bat right, and engage your services. So we have that characteristic, pretty straightforward. The other one about, you know, I'm going to go out there and... Um, you know, I am going to be successful and I am going to kind of, you know, drive this. And they actually do. We've covered the characteristics. Let me ask you another question around that, though. We've said what makes a great CEO in a private equity environment or a C-suite leader. What makes a poor one? Yep. So in the context of a founder trying to make that transition, um, let me let me add one aspect to the first bucket, which is folks who are self-aware and do the right thing for themselves. Um, who, who opt out of the deal. Some of those stay with the company, but in a reduced role, particularly mm -hmm. in software deals, we'll see a founder who was highly technical, uh, decide to become head of product and engineering. And boy, that's a powerful combination when they can stay in that swim lane, make room for a new CEO, the company retains all the, the horsepower and DNA of what made the product great in the first place. And now we're going to pair that with some commercial horsepower at the at the CEO level. So that's another avenue of the constructive side of the bucket. Um, but in terms of what makes a poor CEO transition from a founder, number one, I'd say, you know, look in the mirror and ask yourself, why did you start your business? Now, for me personally, as an entrepreneur, uh, I'm not ashamed to say I started it because I don't like having a boss. I like working for people I'm accountable to, but I want to be my own boss and I don't want to be told what to do. And I want to kind of chart my own course. Well, if that's who you are, and now you've sold into private equity, there's this interesting emotional conundrum that I see unfold consistently, where even though you just sold a majority stake in your company, there is this human nature temptation to believe it's still yours. It's not yours anymore. It is theirs. You're an important stakeholder. And not only is it theirs, it's really their limited partner investors pension funds, university endowments who are absolutely counting on value creation happening in your company. And they really don't care how personally meaningful your business is to you as the founder, if that doesn't manifest itself in a way to create value. So I would say the first bucket is 
you're such a die or the, the first issue that I see, you're such a dyed in the wool entrepreneur around not wanting to have a boss, wanting to be your own person, wanting to be isolated and, and carry the weight and rewards of that. That doesn't work in this environment. You've got to weave into a fabric and be and become a new person under the the ownership of private equity. So you may want to unpack that one a little bit. I'll, I'll pause. Yeah, I, well, I do because I think, but you know, we talked a little bit before about identity transition, mm -hmm. right? Um, what does what does that mean though? Like you know, in terms of or or because because I think it's it's fascinating around um, this this idea of mindset. Right. So I need to shift my mindset that I'm no longer owning this business, but I have to add value to this business in a different way. So there's an evolution of my identity from the founder to something else. Right. Yeah. Um, so how, how does someone do that? I mean, in, in the in the successful transitions that you've seen, what have those founders had to go through? Yeah, great question. So I think it's a couple couple topics come to mind. Number one is just like we've talked about self-awareness and looking in the mirror with your own capabilities. Uh, I, I think the same has to be done with what your company really is. So on one hand, it's an amazing asset that was very valuable to a host of bidders and a competitive uh, bid finally won the day. And, and you had a monetization event that was amazing. And the reason people were interested is you have a beautiful company. At the very same time, when we pop the hood on that company, it is missing several cylinders, carburetors, various parts, uh, turbocharger, and things that private equity find essential to making a business go from a really well-run founder-led business to a true platform, rock-solid, best-in-class systems processes, capable of predictable scale and seamlessly integrating add-on acquisitions, and so the ability for that founder to be both proud of what they built and sold, but also realize, okay, now I'm, I've graduated my company to uh, its own MBA program and we're, we're going to transform it. So I think it's hard for some founders who on one hand are so proud of what they built coming to emotional terms with the fact that now that business is going to have to be completely transformed and when done properly, almost an unrecognizable version of itself four to five years later at exit. Um, so that that's one piece of it. I have another piece, but happy to pause there in case you wanted to. to uh, no, I think let's go. I've got a, a general comment, which I think also comes back to the middle bucket <laughs> that we spoke to in a second. Let's finish off this part and then I'll, then I'll add a comment about that. So then I, I think the other piece is a lot of entrepreneurs, and again, I'm one of you, so I, I admire and respect this trait. It's sort of us against the world. We built it on our own and we, we bootstrapped our way to greatness. That, that's cool. But the thing is, uh, private equity has a wealth of knowledge and expertise. And just about any firm you sell to has had dozens of successful exits. And across those dozens of exits, another four to five add-on acquisitions, which are additional investment experience points for that. And they've seen so much and they know what good looks like and you can learn from them. So coming into the transaction and stripping yourself down to studs and say, okay, I'm going to bring the best of what made me a good founder, but I'm going to learn from my new bosses, the science of value creation to pair with my art of entrepreneurship. And a lot of people don't have the self-esteem or the openness or the willingness or even the, the capacity to take that on. Well, you also said ego as well. I mean, what I've found to help me personally and certainly 
how I educate the clients that I work with um, is, is I often say, you know, it may or may not be an exit for you, right? Like depending on, on, on what you want to do next and all different things. But what it definitely is, is the growth of your company to another level. And so my experience has been businesses that have sold into the mid-market and then sold up to some of the bigger private equity firms and then some of them have actually IPO'd, some have then gone back to private equity. But, but when I look at all of that, it's really about how, how big can we make this, this company in terms of you know, what, it, what it can do, who it can serve, how much money you know, and value it drives, right? So if you think of it like that, I often say to founders, you know, you're great at what you've done so far, but you've got to remember there are other people out there in the world who've got different experiences, right? They've done things, they've, they've, you know, may have different skill sets, right? And really what you're doing when you sell your company is you're, you're bringing different expertise in, different capital, yes, different expertise in to take what you've created and then allow that to grow to the next level. Mm -hmm. Right. And I found that's quite an interesting perspective because particularly to the last group, the ones who end up being either quite successful or the ones that check out and then decide to sit on the board, you know, ultimately their vision, if you like, is still being, you know, taken forward. It's just a different environment than what they started with. And I found that that line of thinking has helped because sometimes people think an exit's the end, mm -hmm. you know, I'm giving up control. I'm giving up. I, I like to think of it more as, as a baton pass. You know, I, I can take it this far, but someone else is going to help me realize the vision in a different way. If I choose to participate in that, I can. If I choose not to, that's great. But, you know, there is the fruit of my labor, so to speak, of creating this amazing business is not ending here. It's just going to a different place. Mm -hmm. You yeah, see what and, I mean? And if you, if you as the founder can drive the decision as to whether or not you go to the board or stay in the seat, as opposed to having that decision driven for you, uh, that's a very telling fork in the road as to how things are going. But um, there's another darker side, you know, to what you learn from private equity. And maybe I shouldn't say darker side, but I'm kind of romantic. Oh, don't worry, we say that all the time. I call it exploitive side. <laughs> <laughs> and listen, so, I'm friends with the private equity guys too, and they laugh about this, but everyone yeah. knows it. You know, in, when you're talking about lots of zeros at the end of things, there are always going to be interesting ways of approaching, you know, what we're talking about. Yeah, there's no doubt. And so we're, we're, I'm kind of romanticizing some of the, the excitement of what you're going to learn on how to grow and scale and create value in a company and all the levers that private equity pulls. And at the same time, you know, there's some harsh realities that maybe you're a, an empathetic founder who's consistently giving your staff uh, standard cost of living raises every year. Uh, well, you may go to your budget and private equity may say this deal is not performing to where we want it to and or that's too much SG&A and we live and die by EBITDA. So your raise proposal is not approved. You're keeping everyone flat. and We don't care that cost of living is up 4%. You get to go deliver that message to your team. Now, that is painful and I'm not necessarily agreeing with it or disagreeing with it. But it is a value creation tactic to keep SGNA under control. Another issue, which I think is a funny one for founders to come to terms with, is pricing. Mm -hmm, one yeah. of private equity's favorite levers is to optimize strategic pricing. And, and most businesses out there are uh, at risk of underpricing their solutions and products. And private equity likes to resolve that. And a lot of founders get super angsty about sort of what they fear is the downside from a customer reaction. And what I'm getting at is the more angst you have about learning from private equity and what they wanna do, and the more hesitancy and the more friction you provide, the more likely you are going to be invited to leave the CEO seat and, and head to the board.
Yeah. So everything you're saying there is about, to some extent, being open-minded um, to the fact that it's going to be different, but also um, having a degree of acceptance that, you know, you're not going to be the smartest guy in the room anymore, <laughs> right? Which, Yeah. And something you said earlier, Nick, which is, you know, in your experience at Getty, where you learned, in my word, not yours, to be dispassionate. Um, and, and, you know, you're still passionate about building and leading the company, but your decision-making becomes dispassionate around what's best for value creation. And by the way, this is not the dark side of private equity where, you know, legend has it, they come in and rape and pillage and then leave a shell of an asset and make money through a bankruptcy. We're talking about building beautiful businesses that are worth a lot more when they sell than when they were acquired, but still that journey requires you to be dispassionate because you will have to make some tough decisions that will otherwise feel uncomfortable if you get too wrapped around the emotional axle. Yeah. And I think, I think, you know, to that point, because we touched on it before, when we said about frameworks and models, you know, you've got to remember that the, the majority of people who make up, you know, the firm partners um, and the guys who are coming into private equity, you know, from other consulting businesses like, you know, McKinsey or BCG, you know, a lot of them are coming through with almost that technical way of looking at things. So if you're a passionate founder, you know, an entrepreneur who values, let's say culture, right? You know, that's important. It's not to say that private equity doesn't understand the value of culture, but they're going to put metrics around it, right? Then they're not going to just believe that it's this amorphous thing that's going to create, you know, an MIC return of five times in three years, right? So what I found that works, and I think, you know, it's an interesting way of, of adapting is the art and science of this, right? You know, there still needs to be the art. Right. There still needs to be the understanding of what it takes to run a successful business. And that's what I find the really good founders and entrepreneurs bring to private equity, because when mm -hmm. they go into that environment, quite often they're surrounded by a lot of people who have never run a business, but they know how to look at what drives value from a spreadsheet, from a balance sheet, from everything else like that. So the marriage, the beautiful marriage is that, you know, all that ability and experience of what, knowing what it takes to literally go in there and, you know, Turn on, open the door, turn on the lights at you know six a.m. for twelve years, with all the other models. When you bring those two things together, that's where you you get a, a beautiful marriage of of performance and growth and value. Well, well that's right. And um, let me hedge one of my comments from earlier around needing to evolve and adapt into that new ecosystem. Part of that, though, is private equity. To your point, is largely staffed by former investment bankers and and deal people, whose primary job is to deploy capital and harvest assets. And oh, by the way, for the five intervening years, they get involved with governance and directing management teams. And in their mind, they bought a company with a certain premise in mind. It lives in a spreadsheet. So therefore, it must be true because logic and math <laughs> indicate that it will happen. And one of the things that they sometimes can struggle with is contextualizing the theory of a spreadsheet into the realities of a business. And that's where management has to, on one hand, be great stakeholder partners, but at the same time, sort of occupy their own ground. And when private equity wants to push non-value added work into the business, like, hey, I noticed a variance on line 457 of, of tab three, can you do a report on what the, the source of that is? Well, that may be interesting, but if it takes 10 man hours, that's time you're not putting into a more important activity. And so being willing to communicate to them on their terms as if they're alien life forms who are 10 times smarter than you, but maybe uh, you know, fractionally as contextualized as you are around the realities of the company and, and making that marriage work. So this is 
in the marriage analogy, this is an opposites attract situation where you yep. need to get into orbit around each other as opposed to a collision uh, path with one another. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm having experiences of PTSD here, actually, <laughs> um, and 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 I've got a kind of final couple of questions for you as well around this. But just to reflect a little bit as you were saying that, um, I remember kind of going into environments not in the very early days, not appreciating the fact that you've got these smart people looking at the business through a different lens to what I did. And it comes back a little bit to what we said beforehand about the ability to influence. So one thing I learned to get very, very good at was listening first, not talking all the time, right? Literally shutting up until the point where I could understand where someone was coming from so that I'd know exactly the the narrative or the choice of words to get the result. And part of the reason for that, and I kind of want to bridge this into a question, is that what I found when I was the CEO and I had a board around me, and that might have a chairman who, you know, a has exited a company as, as sitting there kind of like an operating partner, um, a couple of, you know, sort of junior um, PE guys, and sometimes you might have one of the firm principals coming in and out, you know, to the board meetings. There was never a lack of ideas, right? Like I can't tell you how many times I sat in those board tables and someone said, oh, have you tried this? Why don't we try that? Let's minute that and action it. And you, if, if you don't know how to kind of communicate and push back, you would end up with a laundry list of, of these things, which, you know, if you tried to execute all of them, Rob, you would never ever be able to get the business to where it needs to get to. So my question to you is when, you know, let's say you've sold your business and you've got a board around you for the first time. Firstly, what's the typical structure of that board from your experience? I've given a few highlights here. And what's the best way to really start to manage that board so that you can get the outcome that you want, which is also the outcome the private equity firm wants in a way that's going to be aligned and constructive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, terrific. So in my experience, board construct is a very lean group that almost always includes the senior deal partner uh, from the private equity firm and his or her key number two, who's being groomed and developed, uh, usually a vice president or principal. Yep. So those two are going to be on the board. Uh, we haven't really talked about the differences between operating partner model funds versus their counterparts, but if there is an operating partner, most likely that individual is going to be on the board. And some of them are that lean because they almost have this ethos that we don't use boards. You know, we're, we own the company. Um, I'd say maybe 25% of the funds I deal with are in that super lean um, protocol. Most of them will take that core and augment it with what are called outside board directors, meaning full board members, but not employed by the private equity firm. And these are, um, you know, sort of an industry expert, an end market expert, somebody who represents deep uh, ability to help pull important levers to that company. Um, and then the CEO and founder, if there are two different people, are also usually on the board. But um, so a pretty lean construct. And I think the second part of your question was how, how to how to best get off to the right start. Or the yeah, how to how to kind of like as I, I said, the thing I had to learn quickly just to to bring that back is I had to learn to listen first, um, but say no a lot if I'm honest to push back because it's very easy to think, well, I've got this board around me now for the first time. They must all be great. Every idea they, they say to me is going to be amazing. So I've got to now run off to my business and execute it. The first couple of environments like that I was in, I'll be honest, I failed mm -hmm. because I kept trying to please the board. And what they really wanted was for me to help, you know, tell them what we needed to do to have that, that confidence and certainty. So, so I'm just curious of your, your thoughts on that. 
Yeah. So I, I would agree that listening is essential, which sounds trite, but listening for understanding as to what is motivating the psychology of particularly the, the deal people on the board. So just like you would do a buyer persona, if you were looking at your commercial uh, strategy on your own company, I really think it's valuable to step back and do that exercise with your deal people. Understand they grew up being schooled in the art of negotiation, in the art of counterparties, in the art of not win-win, but win. Um, now they're highly motivated to advance their own career. And every deal they buy puts them in the crosshairs of investment committee and firm's leadership as to whether or not they're going to have a future at that fund or going to be asked to leave at some point. And they've got this weird dichotomy of, on one hand, you know, bold ambition to try to create value, but, you know, very anxiety ridden around the downside. Nobody wants to lose a company back to the bank. And when you do a leverage buyout and you've got five to seven times debt of, uh, of EBITDA multiple, if things go crazy, you can you can lose that company. So really understanding them at their core helps you put into context, okay, they're asking this question. It doesn't seem like value add work for me to focus on, but they're this is why they're asking. Let me work with them to understand what they're really trying to accomplish through the inquiry, point out to them the commitment it's going to take to deliver on the request, offering an alternative avenue to try to create more insight and visibility into what's really driving them in a way that does create value. Because to your point, Nick, if you're a yes person to the board, they will unknowingly occupy all your time. And between that and prepping for monthly operating reviews and quarterly board meetings, you won't have any time left to operate and build that business. Yeah. And if you're definitely the founder, I know we're focused a lot on the founders transitioning. You definitely have a job then. You definitely have a boss. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 That's right. Including day one. Like, you know, I know you oh, just God. got funds flow and you're excited and maybe you, you snuck in a week's vacation but the private equity firm has already unleashed their 100-day plan and locusts of consultants are descending upon the company and it will be under the gun from day one. And so there is absolutely no time for reflection. It's it's game on immediately. Painful. All right, sir. Well, listen, thank you for your time, Rob. This has been great. Um, I know we've touched a lot on founders transitioning predominantly today, but I know that your firm also goes out there and looks for, you know, C-suite leaders who could, you know, survive, thrive, do really well in, in these PE environments. Are the characteristics any different when you're trying to bring someone in versus someone who, you know, has, has you know, run a business themselves? I mean, you said beforehand, blue chip experience then has worked their way down into smaller businesses. But do you ever bring people in who have come from really strong corporate backgrounds or anything like that? Or is that a kind of a bit of a red flag? No, I think the, the there are many cases where division presidents, division CFOs can make fine private equity-backed executives. What I find from my clients is that they view that as sort of an interesting alternative. But what, what's amazing is all of these preferences melt away and vanish when they meet the right human. And all of a sudden, when you are able to inspire confidence and create a sense of enthusiasm around wanting to work with you. So when folks are interviewing, there's two bars you've got to clear for private equity. The first is obvious. Can you justify a fiduciary decision to hire you based on your qualifications? But the second, which is more elusive, is 
we're about to go into a very difficult uh, foxhole situation for five years. They're already exposing themselves to massive stress by buying the company in the first place. They only want to work with people that bring energy and excitement and help buoy their own confidence. And so whether you're introverted or, or extroverted, when you're interviewing, you've got to find a way to convey your X factor emotion, be that competitiveness, passion, uh, disdain for losing, whatever that is, people have to feel you so that they can feel excited about working with you. Um, but back to the corporate protocol, you know, or if you're entering into a private equity firm as a non-founder, the traits are all the same, but the blind spots that you come with are different. Uh, so you've still got to execute on that evolutionary adaptation, um, but the, the traits are the same. Got it. Well, from someone who's who's done that, and funny, it was funny when you were talking about it beforehand, I was at a big uh, media organization, News International, <laughs> and then I got shipped from Australia to the UK to run a division. Then I went to Getty, then I started to go into smaller businesses, and then I finally got into private equity. So I had that transition. From someone who's done that, I can tell you it's a very, very rewarding environment and career you know it does have its dark sides it does have its you know challenges but it also has some spectacular upsides you know and uh again what rob and i agreed i think before we press record is how you know being involved in private equity has probably changed both of our lives for the positive so anyone you know listening to this today who either has a business that's thinking about you know exiting then private equity is absolutely a pathway you should consider but equally if you're someone who's thinking you know what i wouldn't mind getting into this private equity world, how do I do that? Then I'm going to encourage you to reach out to Rob, um, you know, and maybe apply for some of the stuff that he's working on and put yourself forward, particularly if you have the characteristics and the traits that we've talked about today. So Rob, anything else um, that you've got going on right now that you'd like to share with anyone or any final messages you'd like to leave for the, uh, the listeners today? Yeah, one quick plug and then a final message. So private equity cxo.com is a community that we launched a couple of years ago. It's now 15,000 members strong, and it is the world's largest community of, of PE-backed executives and aspiring PE-backed executives where there's a tremendous content library that is absolutely non-commercial, all engineered to help you benefit from the insights of other folks who've been there, done that. And if we can all borrow from each other, that's that's a powerful tool. And there's more coming on the CXO front around interactivity and a 2.0 social media aspect and a lot of fun things that we're building, but we're here to support you and try to help level the playing field. And then my final piece of advice for everybody is whether you're a founder selling or you're an executive searching, as silly as it sounds, pick the right deal. So if you're a founder Pick the fund you want to work with because you think they'll be good partners, even if that bid price is number two, because you're going to make more money on that second bite of the apple anyway, if it goes well. So have the restraint to pick who you want to do business with. And then if you're an executive, you can't do enough diligence of the asset. You can't do enough diligence of the governance model, of the private equity firm, of the company's uh, profile around customer concentration. I've seen A players get fired. I've seen B players become multimillionaires uh, all because they picked either the right or wrong deal. So uh, have the discipline to say no to opportunities that don't resonate in your heart and wait for the one that deserves you so that you can get to that liquidity event. Love it. 
Awesome advice, mate. This has been great. As I said, I haven't touched on this topic on the show before, and I think we've covered a heap of different things today. So listen, we'll make sure that we put all of the um, the links to you, what you do, and the, um, the various communities, the private equity, CXO community, all those things into the show notes. But I just want to say thank you on behalf of myself. I've got a lot out of this conversation. And uh, on behalf of the Scale Up listeners, thank you for coming on the show today. Nick, my pleasure. Thank you so much. Hey, thank you for listening to this episode of Scale Up with Nick Bradley. If you enjoy the show just as much as I enjoy creating it for you, then I'd really appreciate you leaving a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcasts. And while you're there, why not subscribe to the channel so you never miss a future episode? It really helps me. It helps the show. Plus, it makes it easier for others to access the content that I'm producing week in and week out. And finally, if you want more information about anything you heard in today's show, or to find out how you can get more help in scaling up your business and your life, click the link in the show notes now to learn about our coaching, mentoring, and mastermind programs. See you soon.